This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about how these chances to reflect slightly are quite rare when you're just in production phases, so it's good to stand back a bit and see how things interconnect. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 23rd of April 2021 with Hilary Powell. Hilary Powell works with hidden histories and overlooked techniques and acts of imaginative salvage, valuing the seemingly mundane and highlighting and creating the extraordinary in the everyday. Her work is led by materials and places working in partnership with them with contagious curiosity and experimentation and inviting others into the process, be this collective roller skating in urban precincts, air TFL commission, or creating alternative wild operas and industrial hinterlands during the Acme Stephen Cripps Award at High House Production Park, Royal Opera House, Purfleet. Recent projects involve collaborative acts of making, from a public production line making an erupting pop-up book history of the London Olympic site, collected by V&A and MoMA New York, to pulling off a bank job, setting up a bank, printing money, and literally exploding debt, the feature documentary film of which is nominated for Grierson and Bifa. The work is in a constant process of deconstructing grand narratives and finding ways behind the scenes to both reveal and build new stories. During the pandemic, this has led to examining the realities of manufacturing and container shipping with projects supported by the Museum of London and Photo Gallery. Her belief in the power and necessity of artistic and cultural action to challenge an increasingly unjust system and imagine another way of living has led to long-term collaboration with Daniel Edelstein, They have set up both a community interest group company, Optimistic Foundation, dedicated to anarchic, joyful cultural production, and a cooperative energy company in their new project, Power. Powell completed a postdoctoral AHRC fellowship in the creative and performing arts at the Bartlett UCL and was Loverhume alchemist in residence with UCL Chemistry. She shares her work widely with academic institutions and arts and community organizations, most recently as a visiting tutor in visual communication at the RCA. I met Hillary when she gave a lecture to the Black Horse Responders, a group of youth from Walthamstow interested in socially engaged art. I knew of Bank Job, though, as they had won the Art Licks Work Week Prize in 2018. Our conversation was an hour and 15 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you in at the beginning. Yeah, how is teaching at the RCA, especially during the pandemic? It's been a big challenge. I was new to it anyways. I've done teaching, but always more like visiting, you know, always in and out visiting, maybe running a module, but never. And I'm still on precarious contract. I think that's coming up again in the RCA, the casualization. So I started and there was strike action <laughs> straight in there and just like having to go on strike and then the pandemic. So it has been a big challenge because I was new, but I've, I'm lucky to have really good mentors. It's weird because although we've all actually only met online, a lot of us, that sense of solidarity and care is actually more. So now I feel a real kind of affection to all of my fellow tutors. When the pandemic first hit, it all went online for the first year MA students and having to quickly adapt to that. But everyone was so resilient. I really get a lot out of the teaching. I'm learning lots from the students and just different ways of thinking particularly about digital and virtual technologies and how they might interact with my work which has always been much more like materials and people and communities but how that extends online so yeah I've been enjoying it. 
Is it yearly that your contracts are renewed or? I don't know. This year I developed with two other tutors a course that had been running but had to adapt for online about site and like engagement with sites and communities but that would have involved a lot of field trips so last year they came to the bank where my project was this year obviously that couldn't happen so how do you talk about site and materials and physical spaces that took a lot of work and was really something I valued. I'm just super interested in yeah picking all these things apart First, I want to ask you about the mentorship that you've gotten at the RCA and the Solidarity. Is that something that was kind of built in as a part of you entering into the community? Or have you had to like reach out to people or people reached out to you or just because I feel like that's so important. And I'm wondering how much of that is a part of the job description that you have like people who are watching out for you and also people who will help you to be like a better educator and people you can turn to to have honest conversations you know I don't know how much it's part of the job description I feel lucky that some of the senior tutors have just had that kind of ethos that they were there to offer that guidance you know initially you're like I'm sorry to bother you but um what the hell (laughs) but they were like very forthcoming with all of that advice so I was lucky that they were quite new as well they were needing guidance and learning together as well as some really stalwart amazing tutors that were already there so it was kind of more ad hoc and intuitive building these relationships and then there's even a course for the students that I wanted to actually go on the practice of teaching so you're grabbing knowledge from different areas and then putting it to use it's a combination of things you said casualization what does that mean I'm a visiting tutor and you are contracted and you are on PAYE but there's no security really and it's by the hour so you know when you're teaching all of that excess demands on you because you want to care and and offer more help like well I'm actually not getting paid for this (laughs) so where you draw the line and that's coming up quite a lot but at the same time as an artist I'm like well maybe I'm happy casualized how much more admin and responsibility do I want and that kind of balance of all that so I'm like not sure how unionization works in academia like who went on strike was that like a union activity or was did you have to join that union or there's a strong union across RCA the wider teaching union that I actually am not part of don't have to be in the union to then go on strike in agreement and solidarity it was tricky because at that time you don't want to abandon your students either (laughs) and I had some lucky days that strike action wasn't a Friday and my course was Friday. That continuity for the students carried on because you are really aware like of wanting to just have education for the sake of learning and education. But now this extra complication of the fact that students paid (laughs) a lot of money and they're kind of clients or consumers that need a service provided. And that really changes that relationship for the worst. And how you balance that with a lot of the students come out in solidarity too, but were subject to the, these government and for higher up actions. So it's complex because you really don't want to like leave them stranded when they've got such a short time to actually learn and experience an MA. But I think mostly there was real support among the students for the actions of realising that it was all part of the same kind of financialization of everything that's that's going on what is your teaching versus what is your community activism versus like what is your you know art or 
are those all kind of the same thing for you? And how do you allocate your energy based on that? It's almost like having like in a film production company, you don't have a slate of projects, but bank job became like everything took over our lives. And we learned so much about building audiences and reaching out through various means from book to film and, you know, a physical kind of participatory project. The next kind of project on that scale is power. And that's kind of central to everything orbited by the other projects that feed in and out of it. When there is a project like Power, which has so many levels from direct community participation to building a feature film, and and in this case, building a membership site that allows us to grow from the very beginning and build the audience, that's kind of the central work. I do lots and loads of lists. I've just discovered Miro, this online whiteboard thing and that's because I haven't even got a wall big enough to or any wall to put it all on and you need to see it all spread out and that's helped kind of cluster and find the links between projects and because sometimes you're like why am I doing like particularly with working with container shipping and the tin industry that methodology is quite different from bank job and power as a more contained kind of project it doesn't have the ambitions for social change or like contributing to a movement but it's still what are the values within these smaller, quieter projects as well? How do you let projects die? Or like, when do you know it's time to move on? You know, especially if it's not this project that, you know, has these multiple forms of like, you know, a book is done, I guess mm-hmm. when a book is done, you know, and a film is done when it's done and it's released and all of these things. But like some of these smaller projects that do need to kind of be taken to the back burner and then maybe taken off you know the entirely like when do you know yeah when it's kind of time I feel like I hold on to everything because I know it's all related yeah at a certain point it's kind of like maybe that is done yeah I need to step away that's a big issue because I suppose I was upset when I started bank job because I thought I'd abandoned my previous trajectory been working in UCL at that time it's called the fellowship in the creative and performing arts which they don't do anymore the AHRC which was amazing as as an artist to have a chance to be on PAYE in a research institution to basically do a project that you wanted to do and so I'd made this pop-up book and then I managed to stay on by having a residency in um, the chemistry department and all of that work from pop-up then to like experiments with demolition materials was focused on urban change and the idea of setting up an institute of breaking and that's one of those things that I had quite a lot of momentum and then I had to drop it because of bank job and then you realize that actually it surfaces again because in bank job I was blowing up vans I mean there's not more like institute of breaking than that and then those themes are emerging again now in power where we really look at our own habitats like the street where we live and how that can transform to renewable energy but also looking at what a street is made of and that returns me to this material analysis of the environment so yeah it's hard sometimes or there's ones that you you want to do and it's not quite the right time and they're kind of there on the shelf and you wonder if you'll ever <laughs> get to do that currently I'm working with container shipping which has been this desire for maybe the last seven years since I heard about residences on board container ships and I didn't get one of the residences but it sparked a whole interest in reading everything possible and 
they're all interlinked global capital and the flows of goods and people but right now yeah, I'm having to kind of constrict that one I've kind of got a time frame to do some work it will be exhibited at the Museum of London and basically I'll have to stop at that point so you kind of hope you have your health and have a long, longer life to fit them all in this kind of slate of projects that you want to tackle and they all mutate and change and develop through what you learn through every project that you undertake but I think those themes and kind of obsessions remain the same throughout. Yeah what were you doing in Wales? That was basically working with the tin industry there the last tin plate factory and I was taking portraits of all the people working in this factory that produces tin that then goes off to Heinz and they've been working flat out in the pandemic because of the massive increase in demand for tinned goods. So there's all these layers of you know, food banks, tinned goods, Brexit, pandemic. And I was drawn there because of my family history as tin workers in that area of South Wales. So there's this kind of quest there for a bit of heritage and history of labour and making. And it felt good to just be on site because of the pandemic it was in and out meeting people but in a very intense way and I managed to get good support for that from photo gallery Wales the worshipful company of tin workers in in the city and a Welsh trust called the Colwinson Trust so that was like all the work not responding to briefs or commissions but seeking out organizations that you imagine would fit the project and constantly pitching a future version of your work which is also quite scary and a lot of pressure because you're kind of envisaging the future of it when you actually have nothing <laughs> and getting people to believe in things and the responsibility of that to then make that happen is I think that's the biggest kind of stress factor of all of them. <laughs> Do you feel like you quite often have to like envision this project for for people to be able to I think that is the biggest part of them and getting that pitch right but realizing it will change so bank job was kind of a those bigger ones are more illustrative of that because it started off as detonator the way you frame things and how that discourages people from getting involved and then suddenly when it was bank job and a kind of community heist suddenly it was infectious in its mischievous kind of tone we're having the same issues with power now we know all the ingredients but we haven't got its kind of public pitch quite right yet that invitation in which is always a challenge um I suppose things like the tin project you kind of imagine you might have difficulties explaining that you want to put faces on tin cans but actually that in a way was is simpler because it's like here imagine this object <laughs> so it is that act of persuasion at the very beginning and promise which for things like when I did this project called Ring Cycle in Perfleet and was going along to like local heritage centres and the RSPB reserve and a community choir and saying we're going to redo Wagner's epic <laughs> but we're going to do it in the landscape making that desirable <laughs> for like engaging in. Where Bank Job and Power because they're more overtly political then there are certain audiences that you expect to get involved but you're often quite surprised that actually the kind of groups that you imagine would align with your work actually don't and you find these unexpected kind of um, supporters and allegiances so it's always interesting <laughs> and I suppose it's important to analyze as you go along but all of that kind of 
official evaluation and stuff is not really we don't build it in enough I think you can engage with these moments of yeah like you said like mischief you know like that are a bit more light perhaps Mm -hmm. but in order to justify it you have to have this thing that like has uh that holds meaning um Mm -hmm. and that you know other people recognize as being valuable I am interested in things that clearly matter but I also push up against a lot this feeling as though things are so segmented because everything needs to matter because everything needs to have a clear and discernible topic. Like I remember I, I um, was teaching at this one high school. So like 15, 16 year olds um, over the summer. And we visited this one community center and uh, we just ended up like sitting down and having tea with some older people who um, ran it, who um, had been a part of that community. And they were saying that, you know, when they were growing up um, during the summer, there would just be a bus that would like come and pick anybody up. And then it would drive you to like this, you know, more green location and you'd have lunch and then you'd come back home. But then now you have an art camp or you have like a science and tech camp, or you have like a, if you're interested in whales camp. And obviously these things need to exist because, you know, um, these things are interesting and matter and there's an audience for them, but also they're so specific. Um, I think in part because that'll get you funding. Um, So then what happens to like all of the really great ideas that just haven't found their boxes yet, or like all of the things that matter, but maybe don't matter as clearly, or like all the people that should, yeah, just get on a bus and like hang out together and talk about whatever, you know, where do they go during the summer? Yeah, that's true. Cause it has, yeah, to not be constrained by um, labeling every action that you have to take that you can maybe to create a kind of framework, but within that, it's just free play the value of that kind of joyful just nothingness we both me and Dan have been really looking into um solar punk and how our project is solar punk but what is solar punk different from cyberpunk and they have some really great writings around the kind of political dimensions of solar punk and this idea of infrastructure as resistance what can we build in the gaps really like that idea of what escapes down the holes and in the gaps and what can thrive there do you want to envisage a future that's just full of you know a thriving abundance of of different of abundance in a different way like joy and play and creative action (laughs) these like holes and gaps like how do you find them in a city like London London I'm not sure because right now we're thinking well you know we've kind of uh become more compact through necessity through the pandemic we lost the bank we're lucky that we have a garden and a house but everything that we were doing is just now in our house and it is getting a bit much and we're planning to reach out to the world again and kind of needing space to do that (laughs) where are we going to situate this project that wants to have collective making and if we are finding somewhere then what does that involve just constant production and admin negotiations trying to find sites with councils and you know mayor's office I think we're lucky with the bank job to have that space for longer than we thought was like a gap in planning almost and it was really sad when we lost it because I really felt like that was our biggest fight there 
we managed to explode a van in front of towers of finance. I felt like when we then lost the fight for the bank, it was like those forces of speculative capital would come back to go, <laughs> you haven't won at all. You know, these, you know, we're still stronger than you and, you know, artists move along, <laughs> you know, move along out of here. Where can we operate now in these gaps? So yeah, London, I think is a city. Well, I think Max Haven, who wrote Art and Money, in the revenge of unpayable debts, he was saying, lived in Berlin and uh, smaller towns in Canada. It's like London, just the city where finance has taken over <laughs> all of the spaces. So you and Dan work together a lot. Um, how did that happen? How does that work? It's been a long time developing because we first met in our 20s in like Hackney Wick and had no idea, just like, attempting to start off as artists and so then we work kind of separately and he was working more in broadcast film and commercial film and I was PhD moving towards artist projects so when we did work together it was more hierarchical like I might work in the background on a like a on a shoot for channel four so we were skill sharing all, all the way through and then then when he did his first feature film, which became our first feature film, I was there as filming it and uh, doing all the set design, but it was still very much, even though it was co-directed, that was very much his project and things like the tin and container things are very much led by me, but I've then got this support. We're equipped well for film. So there's this kind of cross pollination, but Bangda was the first real collaboration where you could just see that everything we both learned in our separate trajectories came together. Don't quite know how we manage it because, I mean, we're married as well and it's frustrating and we're really different personality types too. He's much more extrovert, does more of that kind of marketing and I thrive off those moments of production. Constantly being in a public world, I find the most exhausting, but I've got much more stamina for labour and physical production and organisation. So it is a good collaboration. But at the beginnings of projects like this power one, it is frustrating because we're working out the best way to, and making loads of mistakes as well. But, but I think it helps, I think through it all, because we're filming this behind the scenes of production, it kind of is hard, but it makes the challenges you face part of the storyline. Well, this will be good for the narrative arc, this disaster, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you've embarrassed your central character. So it's weird. So we're kind of at one step remove thinking in these, archetypal story structures and what's required for a good story <laughs> yeah definitely and then you um you know I was interested when you said you know with bank job that you had these different formats and so you had this film that has yeah a certain kind of narrative structure and then you have a book which has a certain mm -hmm. kind of narrative structure and then you have a participatory event which has another kind of yeah. narrative structure so what did you find out about working between these very different forms and the different stories that you could tell in each one? Hmm. I think like the immediacy of having a bank and a physical shared space of making, that was really at the center of everything because from that, these kind of provocative conversations came and, and these new relationships and understandings. And so that's kind of the heart of the project. The film was always going to be there. That was finding a different kind of structure that could include elements of that kind of participatory making, but not become just a, a document of an artwork, that it had another 
story to tell that could get in more of the the concepts that kind of the bedrock of the project around debt and money and so you could explore more of the complexities but again with limitations because it's only so much you can fit into a one hour feature film and the book enabled a bit more of a personal narrative a kind of origin stories we wanted to call it exploded views but, but this idea of dismantling the project and looking at its parts and trying to kind of figure out components of the finance industry and our own industriousness it wasn't like we planned the book we were approached and we're like oh okay and didn't really realize the amount of work <laughs> well I think we did realize but you know you always put off things till the last minute and we missed lots of deadlines but I feel really happy that there was a book because that's an, just another way that the project can travel out and greet new audiences and things. And for the new project, I suppose we've learned that we're trying to build in sharing with an audience as we go along, rather than just a final product of a feature film and maybe a book, that we build that into the structure of the project that we can share and go from the local to the global along the way and not just wait for distribution at a kind of end point yeah so interesting <laughs> um so I mean like part of me kind of wants you to like top to bottom just be like this is what bank job is like this whole idea of buying local debt with it's like it's still something that I my brain just can't quite process <laughs> how do you buy local debt and then I just want to hear about specifically like how you lost the building. Well, it did start with Dan. And when he talks about it, it was like starting in a crisis almost of meaning. And it was coinciding with us having children. But I was kind of super busy with um, pop-up book production. And I suppose I think I got that fellowship. This is like really backstory, but I got the fellowship early 30s. And it, it was a turning point in I'm an artist working full time on projects rather than the more just surviving piecemeal stuff before so I was really focused but he in the meantime was having a real existential crisis which was a bit frustrating he'd started to read all these books from George Orwell like why I write and like why am I making films and he was doing some kind of crappy commercial work for money like you have to but without any kind of sense of meaning and then a friend mentioned a newspaper article, I think it was The Guardian, about um, strike debt in America, who were part of Occupy Wall Street, and their focus was debt abolition. One of their key thinkers, Andrew Ross, wrote this book, Creditocracy, uh, The Case for Debt Refusal. And the arguments in that were so compelling, the idea that we are all living in a creditocracy, where a creditor class kind of wraps debt around basic human rights of medical care like in America, education, student debt, food, clothes, you know, just the, the need to survive and how people cannot afford these basics and are forced into debt. It's not like a, a choice and to kind of question the moralizing narratives around the debtor and this idea of the other and the shame and stigma that's still there. And that was coupled with reading David Graeber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which again tells this kind of epic journey and challenges those dominant narratives in public discourse around debt and just the lack of understanding around debt and money creation. So we knew that we wanted to do a project and he was involving me more and more, but I was still like, 
back off. <laughs> you know, just like I've, I've got my own things going on. But I was getting more involved because that sense of injustice and hypocrisy at the core of that was my driving kind of factor for getting in, involved. And it, and it took a long time to plan how you would tell this story of debt when all these things are so elusive and abstract, debt, money, now power as well, and how you make an accessible narrative. And we went around, down lots of wrong ends. We started to look at our home and whether Wolfhamstow, I suppose that was when it kind of changed. Rather than look at it in the abstract, we're like, well, what about where we live in Wolfhamstow in London? Is Wolfhamstow a creditocracy? And still finding the resistance to talking about debt, but managing slowly to build up some allies, talking to Gary at the food bank and, and the school and realising there were so many people fighting the fallout of this unjust economic system. I'm still unsure about how it became a bank job, but this kind of building from the ground up and identifying this need for change and the idea of a community heist on the financial system came about. And that was really when it got traction because suddenly we could invite um, people into it, getting people to run around the streets <laughs> like as if they were on a stakeout and stuff and playing with that genre. And we knew that we wanted to explode debt, like buy up debt and see if we could do it in the UK, buy up debt for pennies in the pound and write it off. And to do that, we thought that we would print our own money, give ourselves the power of central banks and, you know, to do what we will with it, which would be to write off debt and stimulate the local economy. So the banknotes had people from the local community on them. Gary, who ran the food bank, Syro and her family ran the homeless kitchen. Steve and Josh ran local youth project and Tracy ran the local primary school. And they were all featured on these alternative banknotes, which had the special purpose of being sold as artworks to raise the pound sterling to buy up one million pounds of local predatory debt and the other half to support those causes. So the way that £1 million is bought by just £20,000 that we raised is that there's a whole secondary debt market. So if you owe £1,000 to whatever creditor, the bank or payday lender, they don't want it on their books for too long. It's automatically sold down the chain to someone who might buy that debt for £500 and then if then try and chase you for the full amount and then it's sold on for less so in a way like the direct impacts to people in debt by buying that might not be massive because that debt is already old and is probably part of many debts that they've got and it doesn't help you know they might they'll still be stuck in a kind of spiral of debt it we're not changing the system through that so the real purpose of that debt write-off was like strike debt to really make a massive do about it <laughs> and pierce public conversation about the kind of illegitimacy of such debts through this write-off which in the end became a big explosion of that debt in a van in front of the towers of finance and we called that Big Bang 2 after Big Bang 1 with Thatcher in 1986 deregulation of the finance system and that explosion was made possible by again putting the bank back into operation and printing bonds and people bought these bonds as a way to help that explosion happen. And their return on their investment was a piece of that explosion. So we made coins and ingots out of the van. So there's all these kind of cycles of materials and making. And all the while that was happening, there was constant events and action in the bank. And then that's part of the feature film and a book. And I suppose 
unlike other projects at the center of it was a need a kind of desire to get lots of press and make sure that the voices ours and debtors as a, all of us as debtors were heard nationally and internationally and that's why we wanted to explode a van not go quietly <laughs> with this project so was that clear oh yeah no it was super clear <laughs> uh, super clear and then um and then with the bank not being able to keep the bank right before the pandemic when we first got the bank we needed to space two weeks to turn into a bank and print money and then but we were lucky that the tenants of the bank were a welsh co-working organization called indie cube and they were really welcoming they i mean we couldn't have done it without them because they were so open to me really pushing it with like oh can we have a bit more of the bank we were anchor tenants so we were looking after it it was meant to be a co-working space but it was so cold that it would never really compete in London against like all these kind of quite swanky co-working spaces they said they'd let the building speak and the building was speaking that it needed to be a bank and it had been a cooperative bank and before that a Midland bank so this was a kind of alternative new kind of rebel bank as it became called but then the footfall and the events that happened there made us really think this needs to stay this kind of place on a high street where there's I mean I say radical education but it's not even radical you know all this stuff that's labeled radical is actually kind of sensible stuff that needs to be implemented right now so we put together a big proposal to try and buy the space develop it as this event space knowledge bank studios residencies on the high street because I think lots of artist studios are kind of relegated to the industrial margins quite hidden away but to have that presence on the high street and it really became my kind of crusade we worked and we've got support from council mayor's office heritage architecture fund but our relationship with the owners just didn't work out it's kind of my fault but we were in a catch-22 situation I registered the building as an asset of community value which offers some kind of planning protection so for six months we were able to bid for the bank and we were bidding we were bidding like to, and they were asking for three million which was kind of ridiculous and we were bidding and we could have kind of paid 2.5 million but we were constrained by business planning to um you know for the doing it up and running it as a business but basically when I put that in as an asset of community value it created an enemy of the owners but if I hadn't done it then they would have just sold it over our heads anyway why was that an issue because it was the only power we really had as tenants we were talking to them but we knew that they were going ahead to sell and the only way we could put the brakes on that sale to allow for more negotiation would be an asset of community value kind of gets the property listed in the council planning as an asset of community value so for six months the community has the right to bid but it doesn't mean that the owners have to take any notice of your right to bid so basically they were constantly backing us back waiting for this special moratorium period when it was an asset to pass before selling it to the highest bidder even though we could have been the highest bidder we weren't trying to get it for a, a low rate just a fair rate thing is the valuation for it came back as what they bought it for which was 575,000 and that was its valuation so they were asking like close to 3 million so that discrepancy between this kind of speculative value and bricks and mortar value and are kind of trying to meet in the middle 
negotiations broke down. It was really hard to kind of just recognise that it was now futile. <laughs> and they said to move out on Christmas Day. And Christmas Day was not punitive. This is just an official day that is, is known in, in legal terms as a day to move out. It's Christmas Day. You've kind of given us ammunition to paint you as the baddies, even though we know they're not the baddies. These stories are always complex because the owners were legal aid solicitors suffering from like massive cuts. Seeing that building, they bought speculatively as their retirement. It's just that we weren't ever trying to block that. We were there with money, but our money was tied up in, you know, big grant funds and a share offer that needed to go public. Ah, so talking about it, I'm like, it was really stressful. But we moved out and it took a while. Like when we talked to Steve from the Soul Project, who'd lost their building, he said that four years later, he still had seven storage units and still kind of spinning from the aftermath of that. They've now got a building and a new collaboration. And for us, sorting through the storage units, getting rid of everything that now we need again. <laughs> but in a way, then the pandemic came and it's been kind of a relief to not have the responsibility of being because the dangers with that is that as an artist, you become a venue operator and a building manager and, you know, a public meet and greet person. And you actually lose track of what your purpose was there in the first place. So maybe we were saved a bit of that because you have to be careful. But now we're thinking again, finding a space to work from. Tell me about power. Power comes really out of bank job and what we learned through that about debt write-off, it would be kind of a reset button for a whole raft of economic measures that are needed to tackle global injustices. And that basically translates as a Green New Deal. We met Anne Pettifor, who was one of the founding writers of the Green New Deal in the UK, and Kate Rower, Donut Economics. So all of that thinking has come directly into how, it's almost like bank job, the sequel, about how now we kind of want to create a grassroots Green New Deal here now, like not waiting for 2050 or some government directive because it's not happening. So we start, and particularly I suppose it was inspired by pandemic lockdown, seeing what could we do from our street? And just looking at the street anew and thinking, well, what if this street could become like a, a speculative future street of fully solar panel, you know, phase one is solar, then insulation. And we create a community energy company we look at these ideas of decentralizing power in all its forms and the kind of value of that. And we fuel that whole project by the production of solar art. And we then make a film that explores this process, but then also asks those bigger questions of power in terms of who holds that power in terms of electricity. I mean, that's our focus, but also on a bigger scale. Is there anything that you thought we would talk about that we haven't talked about? Or uh, do you have any questions for me? Or is there anything that you'd just like to say? Mm. No, it's been quite enjoyable. Yeah, I didn't imagine talking about the teaching because it's always more of an invisible part. But that was quite interesting to be more analytical <laughs> about how teaching plays a role in all of the casualization. I suppose maybe I imagined it would be more talk about institutional structures and funding and everything which I didn't really want to talk about which obviously is another big part of all practice but I'm kind of glad we didn't so I suppose these chances to reflect slightly are quite rare 
when you're just in production phases. So it's good to stand back a bit. And that's prompted me to look again at my wall charts and see how things interconnect. Yeah, it's been really wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Epilogue. On the 24th of January, 2022, Hillary wrote to me, Since talking, the project Power, building a power station across the rooftops of Walthamstow, has developed a lot, and on the 22nd of May, we'll see the public production of the Greenbacks, a new currency backing this grassroots Green New Deal. Bank job continues to screen, and fragments of Big Bang 2, the explosion of debt, will be a part of currencies of war and dissent at the Fitzwilliam Museum, Cambridge, in October 2022. Navigating Light, a project exploring the container shipping industry, is on show as a part of Port City at the Museum of London Docklands until May, and Tin Works continues with plans for film and publication and upcoming exhibitions at Photo Gallery and National Museum of Wales Swansea Waterfront. If you are interested in hearing more excerpts from conversations I've had with people in the arts over the years, head over to the website thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Arts Council England, ArtQuest, The Gain Trust, and Tilla Studios. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden, the episode artwork was created by Fiona Riley, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening and tune in next week to hear a recording of the conversation I had with Zarina Muhammad and Morgan Quaintance on the 24th of February at Whitechapel Gallery.